Welcome to Backstage at the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is drummer, percussionist, and band leader, Bernie Dressel. He's probably most well-known for his pyrotechnic percussion antics behind the drum set with the Brian Setzer Orchestra, the Gordon Goodwin Big Fat Band, and now his own, the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel, which just released a recording. I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Hey, Bernie, this is Sean Kennedy. Well, hello, Sean. Good to hear from you. Yeah, man, thanks for taking some time and agreeing to be on the podcast. I, uh, I've been following your career and your drumming for many years, and I look really forward to uh, speaking with you about it. All right, well, we have about one minute. That's all I have. I'm kind of busy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I could tar for days, so uh, someone pull up a chair if you're going to listen to this. <laughs> I like that. That's a good tagline. <laughs> all right, well, I start every interview with the same question, so here we go. Uh, what is your earliest memory of music? It's interesting what you really remember or you think you remember from seeing a picture or hearing people talk about it. So mm-hmm. kind of a couple things. There's two memories. One of me being in the back of our 61, no, sorry, 1959 uh, black convertible Cadillac. Uh, and being in the back seat, and pounding on the seat to the music my parents would be playing on the radio. And the radio would be on because and why we'd be in the car, you used to go for Sunday drives. No one cared about the 20-cent gas prices per gallon. And uh, so we would go on Sunday drives, especially in the Cadillac. But there I am pounding on the seat to whatever was on the radio, and. My parents probably looked at each other and said, he's a genius. Look at him go. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my earliest memory of the radio. And I kind of kind of remember that, but not vividly. What I do remember way more vividly is when I'm two years old. And first I remember in November of 63, my parents pointing to the television set at John F. Kennedy speaking. There was a clip of him speaking on the black and white television. And my parents were sad. And they explained to me that he was dead now or was killed or something. And I didn't understand that. I'm two years old. Number one, they're pointing at someone on television that's speaking. They had like a news clip of him speaking like And I didn't understand how he could be dead if there he is on the television moving. And so that I remember, that extreme sadness. And then I remember four months later, the extreme exuberance of joy coming from that television set with the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And so I'm two years old, two and four months old, or three months, February, middle of February, they were on Ed Sullivan's show. So I remember that. I remember my first real album I got. My grandmother got me Meet Meet the Beatles, which was the American version of With the Beatles, and uh, playing that on my uh, phonograph record, and uh, that would fold up. You know, it was it wasn't just a turntable. It was something that you could pack away 
and take it away mm-hmm. like a suitcase. Not one of those ultra portables, but it was a pretty big turntable, you know, but uh, would fold up into like a suitcase with latches. But uh, that's that's my earliest memory of music. That that phonograph record I had, or um, a player I had, and the Beatles and Ed Sullivan right after that sadness at Kennedy, and going for those rides in the 59 Cadillac. Oh, that's beautiful. Now, did you have any siblings, or was it just you and mom and dad? I was the first, first, first uh, of two, and my brother's a mm-hmm. drummer also. He's six years younger than me. He's taller, not as good looking, but um, <laughs> he's uh, my brother and only brother, only sibling. But at that mm-hmm. time, yeah, I was only child for the first six years. Yeah. Okay. And his name is Jonathan Dressel, and he plays drums now on the Jimmy Kimmel show for, well, however long that's been on, 13 years, something like that. Every, oh, nice. like, four nights a week on ABC at 1130. <laughs> He's the house Perfect. drummer on this show, on Jimmy Kimmel. Yep, I've seen him many times then. Um, <laughs> did mom and dad play any instruments? My dad plays the radio. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my mom, and we'd listen, believe me, another early memory is on Sunday in Pennsylvania, right on the Ohio border, Sharon, Pennsylvania, listening to Polka Party. His, oh, yeah. his dad, my grandfather, came over from Poland. Polkas and accordion bands are really big in the Amish country area where I lived. I mean, it wasn't totally Amish right where I was, but it's in that vicinity. But mm-hmm. polkas were, you know, 1964 to 75 polka party, polka wedding bands, etc. So I, I li- heard a lot of that through him. And... uh which isn't that far away from that rockabilly train beat, really, but uh, right. that I ended up playing with Brian Setzer later. But uh, my mom, on my mom's side of the family, there was a lot of, like, porch music, I'd call it, hillbilly music. My mom was kind of semi-pro. No, not semi-pro. She was amateur singer, meaning never got paid. But they mm-hmm. would play and perform, and they'd be on the, some radio shows sometime, her and her bro- couple of brothers. But so there was guitar, Hawaiian guitar, which is kind of like a pedal steel, uh, and key chest bass, like in there, and her and her family. So that kind of came from that. But you know, I didn't really know that when I'm two. It was just happened to be there, and I didn't really. Right. I would hear my mom sing sometimes in the house, or yeah, but um, not real, not professional musicians by any means, right? Okay, yeah, and I can uh, back you up in that polka stuff because years ago I went out to a Punxsutawney to see the uh, Groundhog, and ah. uh, with, my, with yeah, with my wife and children, and we're driving around, and I couldn't find any music, and I I kid you not, there were at least three stations playing polka as we were driving around out there. So, still uh-huh. happening. Yeah, I've never seen the Groundhog uh, come up in Punxsutawney except on the movie Groundhog Day. That's the only uh-huh, time I've yeah. seen it. Who could have imagined that our interview would have started with your earliest memory of guts for Groundhog? But uh, I digress. Let's go back to the let's go back to your formative years and some music. Um, so, through grade school, middle school, high school, um, I guess you started taking lessons at some point. And um, like, just describe the environment when you were in school, middle school, high school. Did you have aspirations of going to college for music? Um, where where were you like as a twelve, thirteen year old kid mentally? Yeah, and I. 
I'll try and do the abridged, if that's the right word, edition of speeding up that. Uh, those uh, that's a lot of years for me because it started. The story would start when I'm three, really. My dad wow. trying to take me in for drum lessons. There. Like I was, I was like he had he had bought a drum set for me probably when I was three. I mean, first we got those toy drum sets. That were like from uh-huh. Sears and Pennies. That at the time they used to have paper heads. I mean, literally oh, sure. paper. You know, thick paper, cardboard. What? Not even cardboard. Thick paper. They weren't plastic like the toy drum sets today were. So these didn't last very long. You'd go right through them, bashing through them with a stick. But yeah, mm-hmm. from playing at my grandmother's house on pots and pans with wooden spoons. You know that was happening. And those those drum sets or were the bass drums taller than me because I'm three years old, um, right? they tried to take me in for lessons at Mark's Music in Farrell, PA. They're, they're, they're still there this day. How many years later is that? That's 1965, 35, do the math. Mm-hmm. Well, we're What's past like 50, 50 years there. Right. 50 some years, yeah. I think they're 65 years now they've been around. Anyway, they moved to Hermitage, PA. They're still going strong as a, literally a mom and pop music store. But took me in at three. Ah, oh, he's too young, you know. Bring him back later. Dad took me in at three and a half and four. <laughs> same story. Four and a half, something like that. And finally, at four and a half, they go, okay, okay, we'll give him a trial lesson. So I was pretty uh, quiet child. I wasn't jumping around all over the place, and uh, I guess I was somewhat focused because of my shyness or quietness and i would take direction very very well i wouldn't like just go off and on my own thing and you know lose focus and so the lesson went very well because of that and um the the teacher kid oh you should have brought him in earlier you know so (laughs) i started lessons formal lessons at four and a half they got rid of the drum set then they said not but we're just gonna do hand stuff on the pad uh eventually i got a snare drum from santa but again more hand bass not drum set finally at eight and a half okay santa's i really want a drum set four years after taking lessons and uh so santa brought a drum set an olympic premier blue swirl 20 by 12 bass drum 12 inch 16 inch toms and uh so i had a drum set finally um when I was 10, I or like at 8, oh, let me back up, 8, I started getting involved with drum and baton cores, or is what they were. They weren't drum and bugle cores. They were baton twirlers, drum line, basically like a modern drum line, uh, not that high-pitched snare, lower-pitched snare. I think they were 15 by 12 or 15 by mm-hmm. 10 or something. And uh, there I am at 8 years old with this big snare drum strapped around me. And marching parades and field shows with the baton twirlers, the drum line, and trumpet players. Well, we didn't have bugles, we had trumpet players. And through that, there were some competitions at Notre Dame where I became national snare drum champion for my age group. When I was 10, uh, all the way through 14, where I finally went, okay, enough of that. I, I don't want to do competitions anymore and gear up for this two-minute solo and running down a few rudiments and competing like that in the snare drum. But I I was national snare drum champion for those uh, few years that I was doing it, well, four or five years. And uh, 
started piano lessons at seventh grade, was told that was a good thing to do, take theory. Um, oh, yeah, fourth grade, jumping back. I even started alto saxophone. So I had different instruments going on, too. And then finally, okay, got to get ready for college uh, auditions where you're going to have to play marimba, timpani. And so I was already playing timpani and, and snare drum, obviously, we would be on that audition, too. Uh, but uh, so we bought a marimba, or vibes first, then bought a marimba, and uh, was starting to get my mallet playing together so I'd get ready for college auditions. And which I auditioned at Eastman School of Music in Rochester with John Beck teaching there. Mm, uh, wow. Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, where Alan, I think he still teaches it there to this day, Alan Audie from the Black, uh, Black Earth Percussion Group was in residence there. Um, from what I understood, though, Eastman had a better jazz ensemble program, or at least a more known jazz ensemble program. Let's just say that. I don't know enough about mm-hmm. Cincinnati to make that comment on them. But um, And then I also auditioned at Youngstown State, where that whole time I was studying privately at Mark's Music, my teacher, Bob Bedell, was my teacher until my senior year. He moved away to go teach at some college or move away. I forget exactly what he was doing and he was the timpanist in youngstown state uh i'm sorry youngstown uh symphony orchestra uh for many years but he moved away so i started studying with the teacher at youngstown state university joe parling for that critical final year to get ready for get the auditions ready and so prepared for that i got accepted all three places youngstown had a great jazz ensemble program at the time uh, but my, my, I really wanted to go to Cincinnati or Eastman, and I got accepted both and uh, ended up going to Eastman for music education degree and performance degree, a double degree. So there, I guess in a nutshell, trying to say how I went from one to the other, skipping over a lot of things, bands I played in, et cetera, at a young age where everyone's older than me, uh, whether it's jazz ensemble or a band put together in high school where we did high school dances and played more pop music and funk and Zeppelin and and the Pennsylvania polka, if they wanted it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, it's a must. So, uh, yeah, that bring, brings me to being 21 and in 1983, moved out to California and drove out to California. To, uh, had, to, had to move somewhere. Had to figure out, okay, Rochester's a great city. It really is. And a great music city that kind of feeds off that Eastman program there, too. Um, good music in the schools programs and uh, where I did my student teaching. Uh, but wanted to move to either New York, L.A., Nashville. I didn't think I wanted to do that. Uh, I had heard Dallas was maybe an up-and-coming city for jingles. And Chicago obviously had a big... Jingle scenes, a big city. New York was closer, but uh, ended up moving out to Los Angeles because one of my better friends that I did a lot of playing with, a bass player named Rick Shaw, who later we played in the uh, Letterman together. We played in Gordon Goodwin's Big Fat Band together for many years. He moved to L.A. about a year before me, and I just felt that was a little better start, someone that really knew my playing in a rhythm section way. Um, than going a little more cold turkey on New York. 
Um, mm-hmm. And just thought the weather in L.A. I'd never been there, never been to California at that point, but just thought about the weather, possibly the safety, a little more, less, more spread out than straight up uh, as far as buildings, et cetera, and just took that plunge. But really, it was a crapshoot. Where are you going to move? Anyone faces that. Where Where should I move? You know, <laughs> if you're in a little more of a smaller city. So, right. So how long were you in L.A. before things really started popping for you gig-wise? Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes people, when they move to a city, go, I'm, you know, whether they say it or not, they might go, oh, I'm going to give it six months or I'm going to give it a year. And then they it doesn't happen, and then they leave. Uh-huh. Or they're just shocked that it's not happening yet. So it's a very slow process. I mean, I was in L.A. trying to get involved in some top 40 bands, again, with Rick Shaw. Um, it's where I actually met uh, Lisa Burns, who she became Lisa Goodwin much later. Well, I don't know, much later, but quite a bit later from that time period uh, where she married Gordon Goodwin. She's the one that actually told Gordon about me. So... Hmm. That's an example how, you know, one thing can lead to another that you don't even expect or it could take years to manifest even. Um, But uh, I think I was in town for about six months and then, or was it a year? Now I'm confused. But I ended up going on the road with the singing group, The Letterman, again Mm -hmm. with Rick. And one of my other buddies, who now teaches at UT Austin, the head of the jazz program there, Jeff Homer, and we went on the road as a with the singing group, the Letterman, for about, I think, for about a year. Wow. And so I was gone quite a bit. And then finally, I quit the group and went, okay, that's enough of that. I got my professional credit. And when I first moved to LA, you go, oh, hi, nice to meet you, uh, famous drummer. Uh, yeah, I went to Eastman. Oh, really? Okay, great. See you later. You know, you think, okay, that didn't open up too many doors of me just telling someone that. And the same thing with the Letterman. I go, okay, I got a professional credit now. Okay, famous drummer. I played famous bass player, uh, or Joe Blow, a guitar player. I played with the Letterman. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay, see you later. Uh, and it doesn't just, you know, open up. And right. the one thing that's different then, I'm talking 30 years ago now, then was there was more movement, I think, of players from gig to gig. Someone would be, you know, like, uh, would be playing with uh, James Taylor, and then they go play with the Rippingtons, then they go play with such and such, so and so. Now, there's, there, when there's many more players wanting gigs that aren't there even more so now. And so players are a little more reluctant to give up a gig and quit a gig. Uh, Or they don't overlap as much. So um, I think there's less movement now, which means it's harder to break in, even harder than it used to be, and it was hard enough before. Sorry for the bad news. But then again, (laughs) if you're great, that greatness will find its way. You just have to give it time. It is not an overnight. You uh, jump in and people welcome you and uh, uh, with gigs. So um, 
it's it's a tough thing, you know. And that probably goes. I mean, it would definitely go even in the not the music business. A lot of people go into college, come out of college with a degree in such and such. Okay, you're out of college now. Now what? Oh my gosh! Right. You need to get work, and there's not necessarily the jobs there in any profession, let alone music. So it's a, it's a tough thing. So you really have to want what you're doing. Wait it out with, you know, really trying your best to be seen, meet people, try to work your way up the ladder from doing, you know, bad gigs all the way up, you know, try to try to move up that ladder. But uh, it's not an easy thing, and it can be very frustrating and even sad along the way that it's not moving quick enough. So sure, you got to right. give it time. you got to give it time. So, I mean, 19, moving there in 83 L.A., I end up getting Maynard Ferguson's gig uh, in 1986 with some friends I was playing in L.A. with, with Bob Wackerman, one of them, one of the Wackerman brothers. Uh, mm -hmm. I think maybe the only Wackerman brother that doesn't play drums. He played bass. And we played with Maynard's band together. We became roommates in L.A. But I only did Maynard for nine weeks because huh. a gig opened up. Some guys stayed on that band for a year, four years. I did nine weeks, one tour, and then because I had the opportunity to do a studio, a musician gig in, in L.A. for a television show so called Our House. So this is beginning of 87, and uh, started doing that where drum set and percussion. So... I think you mentioned like what led to what, you know, what. So my college degree and my, me playing classical music all those years uh, and drums led to them needing one guy that did both on that particular show. And to this day, I'm still kind of that guy where I do both on film scores, TV shows like Family Guy and Simpsons, uh, American Dad, movies. What we just do, Planet of the Apes, a couple of those, a couple of Star Treks, Star Wars, uh, the Pixar movies like Up. That my, I'm fortunate enough to work with the great composer Michael Giacchino on a lot of those. Um, wow. Different things. Uh, Minions, Despicable <laughs> Me, 2 and 3 or whatever. So Ice Age... Uh, Sometimes I go, oh, gosh, I hope I can remember because some, some of these come and then, bam, they're gone. Like, just did Spider-Man uh, Homecoming, which is a really cool odd drum set I used on that of weird, weird drums, not not uh, standard drum set sounds. But um, so along the way there, you know, I'm playing drum set on a lot of those shows or movies, but then I move over in the percussion section. And, or it could be only percussion or only drums. So. You know, my schooling and along the way playing classical music, jazz, big band, funk, rock, pop, it's all come together where that's what a studio musician, I mean, the ones that will work the most are the ones that will be the most uh, uh, versatile that they know they could call you for just about anything. Or sure. suddenly there's a cue that is something different out of the ordinary in it. I remember having to play Tabla once on The Simpsons. And <laughs> I'm going, gosh, I hope they don't hear this in India. Because you know, right. I'm not, you know, Tabla can be a lifelong study instrument. I mean, it is. Sure. 
So to suddenly go, oh, yeah, put a little tabla on this. Um, it would almost be like some, someone say, hey, could you play tuba on this one? <laughs> you know, so, but you fake it, you make it happen, you get the sound out, you play groove, you play some uh, sounds that will sound like you know what you're doing for this, you know, short Simpsons uh, opening uh, song that had some right. Indian vibe in it. And uh, uh, you do it and you make it happen. And so you play to a the, click. Yeah. What's the prep time on one of these gigs? Like when you get called for the gig, if they say, you know, Bernie, come in, we have a movie. Do they typically send the music beforehand? Do you just show up and kind of read through it? Like, how does that go? They generally do not send anything. Sometimes okay. they occasionally will provide something ahead of time. But more often than not, when they do, I look at it and go, oh, I didn't need to see that. Right. Because the the guys that are doing and and gals that are doing studio work, usually you're a monster reader, read your butt off, and or it's not that hard. And uh, so there's usually no prep time. You usually get mm. there an hour before, set up gear, you know. I mean, we're not setting up like drums, but like if you're a percussionist, you're like, okay, I need to pull out a vibra slap and uh, uh, four rototoms out of this case or, uh, uh, you know, um, uncover the marimba or whatever. So there's some <laughs> yeah. things to do to prep, but then you look at the music too and go, all right, is there anything I need to look at here? You skim it. Okay, nothing there. Okay, great. I can just read this. But they expect right. you to read it down the first time, not be not be making mistakes. Um, wow. Sure, so we're, we're, all, they, sure, we're all human. We're human. But especially sure. when you're new, if you make a mistake on reading, they'll be like, uh-oh. Meaning, right. is there going to be a lot more mistakes? But when you've been there a while, you get a little reputation, there's a little leash there to go, oops. And it's a reading, fine. But they really want to hear it, how they wrote it the first time, and then go, okay, let's try it again. But this time, take out that triangle on bar two. Or could you put a temp note on bar four? Or right. let's put French horns, uh, uh, let's take those out of bars eight through through 12. And they make some changes. And then they want to hear that realized. And... Generally, after that one reading, however they liked it, whether the way they wrote it or after the changes, then they're going to go, okay, let's make it, all right? And then you make it, you play it, and that's where, okay, you've already played this once or twice, uh, whether this song is or cue is four seconds long or a minute and 20. We're talking about for film scoring or TV here. You know, a song would be, you know, four to six minutes possibly. But... uh then, then it needs to be right, and it can't be having uh, quote-unquote mistakes, and it needs to groove, and it needs to be musical, and you need to kick their butt. And uh, so they call you again. Mm-hmm. This is not a regular job that you, you're you called session to session, gig to gig. And, uh, yeah, you're not hired for, like my brother, Jimmy Kimmel, he'd be hired for the show. And he knows he right. has that four day, five days a week, and until the show goes off the air, unless he gets fired, which could happen, anyone can get fired right. from their job, and then suddenly have no job. When someone like me that's freelancing with hundreds of different jobs, different people you work with, you know, if you lost an account with one person for whatever reason, uh, like for instance, Simpsons after 29 years. 
they stopped using the composer Alf Clausen. Mm-hmm. And the, and we decided to go in another direction, which might have been let's uh, spend less money and not have mm-hmm. 35 musicians. Whatever the reason, suddenly I'm out. I'm not, you know, generally will not do Simpsons now unless the new guy calls me. So we'll find out. That just happened. But um, right. Um, so, but it's not catastrophic when you lose one gig and you have 50 gigs going. Right. Someone that has one gig and that's all they do a lot. You lose it suddenly, you're out of work. So that's that's a rough one for anyone, whether they work at a uh, Macy's or McDonald's or. So there you go. Okay, interesting. So. Just to continue with the uh, film thing, I had a couple of film questions. Is there a typical lag time between the time you record it and it's released in the theaters? Is it like six months, a year, or is it? does it depend on the production? I don't have to know about that because I'm hired for the session and then I walk away like I just did Orville. And I don't know. It might air two days from after we did it. That's the new Seth MacFarlane show. Or it might be four weeks. Um, so same thing with the movie. It could be, it usually wouldn't be two days later, but after we record it, it could be uh, six weeks later. Uh, it's in the theaters. Or we recorded it and they're still working on the movie and they're making changes to it. Not And, and maybe reshooting some scene or et- re-editing where they have to record the music again for the new edit. And so sometimes we'll go back and do a fixed day after working on a movie for, like we just did, there's a movie coming out, it's not out yet, called Coco. And, um, you know, I think we did three or four days, days meaning like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then uh, there was a fixed date maybe three weeks after that, four weeks after that. Mm. Yeah, so it can vary from project to project. Like my band's album, um, I have a big band called the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel. And uh, after playing with the uh, Brian Setzer Orchestra for 15 years, which is a big band, but more rockabilly swing, and then doing Gordon Gillen's Big Fat Band, which is a big band and contemporary big band, I call it, different grooves. I started my own big band a couple years ago, and we have a record out called Live in Vernon. And we recorded it live in, I think it was April. And by the time we in recording it live, there's no fixes to do. There's only mixing and release it and get cover artwork and all things like that. And there were some delays in like artwork and things like that, that when we finally released it in September, so May, June, July, August, September. That was five months later. We mm-hmm. and that was after mixing. You know, we mixed it during that time. We actually mixed it in stereo, five point one and nine point one surround, which is very like hardly anyone has nine point one yet. But some a lot of people have five point one now in their homes for movies. So the album Live and Burning is available on Blu-ray in that surround format, or you know, CD and stereo, but that uh, that came out uh, five months after recording it. So for a record, that would maybe not be unusual just because of uh, 
lag time of preparation, getting it completely finished and uh, promoted a little bit ahead of time that you're going to release it and actually manufacturing it. But a TV show, bam, or it can be on, you know, a few days later. Because the music on a movie or a TV show is the last, pretty much just about the last thing that happens. Mm, it's the okay. thing that really makes the the uh, movie come to life or the TV show. Like, for instance, all the animated shows like uh, that Seth MacFarlane does for Fox um, or uh, um, Simpsons, you know, it's mm-hmm. a cartoon. It's not human, but the, you got human voices there. And then really human music is what brings it to life that really connects an emotional thing with the audience to want to watch that, especially adults. So, you know, and and I'm talking real music, not synthesizers or sequencers or fake drums, but real. I mean, they already have a fake person, Homer Simpson, on the screen. They need something human in there that people want to, that's what we kind of gravitate to as a society is you know, art and artwork and paintings that are really drawn, not just created by a a computer. So, um, yeah, so the music's very important. Not, it's, I mean, more important than than society now, which has been a devaluation of of music and art in general, which is, you know, that's, that's got to change. It's, it's, it needs to come back as far as the people realizing that it is important to their lives and our culture. Because without that, what do we got? You know, bad news from the on right. uh, on the television. You know, so um, to encourage all my listeners, they should definitely pick up the uh, the new record. I picked it up about uh, I don't know a month ago, I guess, right when you released it, and it's fantastic. Um, ah, terrific! Now, did you get yeah, it on it, CD or what? what was no, the, I got or, or um, digital download. iTunes, I think, or Amazon digital download. One of them, I forget. Right, one. digital download. Yeah. Now, yeah. my favorite. Which is that sound quality is like a CD, which we're used to. But oh my gosh, the Blu-ray, which is at 96K and 24-bit, even if you just listen to it in stereo, not not even the surround on it, it's just you go, oh wow, it really kind of connects even more. The Blu-ray is my favorite release. We released it on vinyl too, and believe it or not, reel-to-reel tape. Like wow. audio oh, file, cool, ten inch, ten inch reel at fifteen inches per second. Like I even went out and bought a reel to reel machine to play it, you know, and, and experience yeah, that my again. Dad has one. Hey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so believe it or not, there's a there's a small market, but there's a little bit of a market for that kind of reel to reel hobbyist. When this, you know, there's something about threading that tape on the machine. Or put oh, yeah. that needle down on the vinyl. I like. Do you have a turntable? Set oh up? yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So right there's the something yeah. about that. You know, that's not always the best. There's something about the analog thing too, but it's uh-huh. not. I don't think it really competes with the Blu-ray, but it definitely competes with the uh, CD, I mean, the vinyl and the and the tape. Uh, that kind of uh, analog sound. But man, that Blu-ray at that high high digital rate. I think they even released it now live and burning on like a HD uh, digital download, which is at the higher bit rate. As I listen to your new album, uh, for me, it's very reminiscent of like the Big Swing Face or some of the live Buddy albums that he did in Vegas. 
It just has this energy that you can't get on a studio recording. So going to Buddy, I know you are a big Buddy fan. I never got to see Buddy. I guess I was a little too young. I had a ticket to see him, and he died a month before the concert. Uh, Uh. But just can you tell us about your love of Buddy, like if you ever saw him play, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, he just would have been, as of like five days ago, 100 years old. He died when about 30 years ago when he was just about mm-hmm. almost 70 years old, not quite. And he was still playing great up until the day he died. He wasn't like, oh, poor guy, look at him, he's losing it. He was like on right. top of his game all the way to the end. And, yes, I got to see, you know, first I saw the, the Beatles and Ringo. And then about four years later, when I'm about eight, I got Buddy live at the Whiskey A Go-Go, where they're playing a little more rock stuff. But that was my first Buddy record. And then we would go to see him every year. My parents were so supportive of me and my brother and our love of music and getting us in the best position they could to, uh, uh, you know, benefit us. And one of them was taking us and taking me to see Buddy Rich at Idora Park right outside of Youngstown, Ohio. And they'd come every he'd come every summer, sometimes double bill with Maynard. But from yeah, I guess I was eight or nine, went to see him every year then in high school. And then when he would come to Rochester. And then when I moved to LA in eighty three, would see him at uh Carnation Gardens at Disneyland, where he'd play there for a few years. And in fact, the last time I saw him play full circle to Rick Shaw again. Rick Shaw was playing bass in his band. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, Did you ever get to talk to him? Well, that, at that, I saw him backstage at, at that one time in, in, uh, in Disneyland between two sets. And there I'm with Rick and my uh, other Eastman buddy, uh, Matt Harris, that was playing piano with him. And there was Buddy standing there outside within striking distance in a white bathrobe I don't know if he had slippers on. I can't remember. I remember that white bathrobe, but I remember more than anything, his arms crossed as hard as you could cross them across your chest and not looking happy. And I went, <laughs> I am not going to say hi to him right now. <laughs> it was not Probably the right. Number one, he's in, he's in his bathrobe. He's not in a good mood for some reason. I'm not going to say hi. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and I think uh, I think Rick and Matt were thought that was a good idea, <laughs> not to say hi to him. So I never had to meet him per se, okay. but I did see him in his bathrobe. So not a lot of well, people can say people that. Say yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, no, I saw... yes, okay. I have a big Sorry, love ahead. for Buddy. Big love for Buddy. I mean, even when when I was uh, 49 years old, which is what six years ago now. I decide, what am I going to do for my 50th birthday? And I thought, okay, midlife crisis. Okay, I'm going to do a whole concert of Buddy Rich stuff just for me, just for friends, and invite for like kind of a birthday party concert. It'd be fun for me to do that. I'd never played all of his charts, uh, you know, that were in his band. I played a, a couple over the years. So I went, let me kind of get inside of him like a almost like a the doctoral thesis for a year and just really study them. Now that there's a YouTube at that point, I can really break it down, look at them, practice for a year. I kind of not practiced in a long time. I was just doing a lot of playing. So I really got inside him then and really worked on my left hand and studying his uh, vocabulary. And uh, 
Um, so did that concert and, uh, and then a few years later I went, you know what? I think it's time for me to finally put my own big band together, which again is called the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel and kind of pattern it after Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, Krupa, drum led big bands. I played in many big bands where, gosh, you know, the drums are so important to a big band, obviously visually and any band, really, what the drums do to any band uh, and how important that chair is. But I thought, okay, I think it's my time to put a band together. Let me do this. And uh, so I, uh, you know, we recorded that album a year, no, two years ago, and it came out about a year ago, something like that. And the band's been together three years now. And, uh, Yes, I think when you're a drummer and you're playing some up-tempo stuff, high trumpets, exciting music, the big drum solo, Buddy's always going to come to mind when in when and when it's yeah. that. But he's definitely important to me, very important, just like anybody, but uh, to some degree. But as soon as you put a band together and you're a drummer and you're you're doing that type of type of tunes. It's and as much as I'd studied Buddy at one point and tried to not be a Buddy, and I don't, I'm pretty sure I am, I am not a Buddy copy. But there's some of him in me, just like there's some of Tony Williams or some of Steve Gadd or Art Blakey, a lot of drum. But when I'm playing the big band music like that, but you know, you're gonna go Buddy or Louie sure. or Krupa, you know. So um, there is that uh, analogy there. Uh, yeah, when you do that, synonymous with uh, that combination. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's just such an here. icon and legend, and yep. you know they they called him the greatest drummer, uh, world's greatest drummer for a reason. You know, even though it's hard to right. say there's the world's greatest anything, and sure. uh, you know it's there was a reason for that. And you know the one thing he had too, and maybe I'm starting to develop it. I'm told. I'm told is uh he was a personality and he you know be on carson and sitting in the chair and cutting up with johnny on the late night talk shows and it wasn't just about his playing he was funny and he was you know he came out of vaudeville when he was two years two years old vaudeville and a performer seeing about performing and stage presence and selling it and being funny and pacing and so He's been a big influence on me that way that, you know, I I would never try to copy his style of talking. That'd be ridiculous. But, um, right. you know, I think I'm me, and I guess I'm told I'm funny sometimes on stage, and uh, pacing's good, and the feeling is good, and uh, I try not to over-talk. It's all part of the show, and uh try to pace that well so I'm not over-talking or under-talking. Yeah. Yeah, so another legend. Just I've probably just two more questions, then we can wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was skimming, as I was skimming through your bio and all your um, credentials, um, of course, things that are meaningful to me are going to pop out first. So the one TV show I saw that I just wanted to ask you about was the Frank Sinatra "80 Years My Way." I had some credits mm-hmm. for that. Um, I love Frank. I got to see Frank in concert actually before he passed. You know, uh-huh. I've gone to Hoboken where he was born. Um, oh. My kids are fed up with me and Frank Sinatra, but I love all this stuff, and I play with a Frank Sinatra band. 
So what was that TV special like? Did you get to interact with Frank? Like, what was that all about? And there was no interaction with Frank in general, I'd say. He showed up. uh, So people know what this concert was. It was a television show, uh, 80 years, Frank Sinatra, 80 years in music. So I guess he was 80 years old then. And he attended, Uh sitting in the front row, and all these different celebrity musical acts, whether it was Paula Abdul or uh, Bruce Springsteen doing, I think he did Lush Life, or uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, uh, Oh, gosh. Now I can't think of a... Bapalua. Uh, what's his name? I can't think of it. But he, oh, Little Richard, Little Richard. Oh yeah. He did I Feel Pretty or something or, or <laughs> something. No, he did that old Black Magic. That's right. He did that okay. old Black Magic. So they were all singing tunes that Frank Sinatra had sung, and Frank looked 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 a little pained at times, <laughs> <laughs> hearing people's versions. That you know these shows are meant to you know get viewers not like they're not getting like mel torme up there these are all pop right. stars like hootie and the blowfish the whole band <laughs> literally doing fly me to the moon oh and my god so some some things were better than others you know but they were yeah. supposed to celebrate him through that and um so it was great to be band? a part of that say it again was it a house band you was it a house yes, band you a, were in it okay. was a house band but I believe, okay. like when Hootie, Hootie and the Blowfish might have played, I might have just played tambourine on that because their drummer was playing. Okay, uh, I see. Yeah, but sometimes it'd be like, like, and I think when Springsteen, he, I think it was Lush Life, he did, but <laughs> it was notable that it might have been only had four chords, where the original tune might have had <laughs> ten chords or something. And right. but he did it solo, just him. And the uh, 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 and guitar and him singing, you know. So we didn't back him per se, but we're on stage. So there were different moments of really getting to play, and other times being subservient to the art artist. But uh, Frank finally came up at the end and sang my uh, joined in on my way, not just him singing it alone. He was pretty. He was getting a little frail by then, if I remember correctly. So. I think we all kind of helped him, all the people kind of helped him even get through it. I mean, it was that kind of, that point of his life where he was not performing. And so, right. but they, they brought him up for that final uh, My Way. And I'd have to look at again, how many years ago was that? I don't know, 20? Yeah, at least. So uh, that's how the concert concluded. But I did want to say this, too. It, it kind of goes back to... Uh, you know, that and also like uh, Brian Setzer that I played with and and the BBB, my big band featuring Bernie Dressel, is we don't we didn't use click tracks. We just played live like and didn't state if musicians know about recording the pro tools on the Apple computer or uh, that you you record to the grid. There's a click track. You can see each measure. It's all equal and perfect. But that's not what the human heart does. The human heart speeds up when you get a little faster. It varies. And when the Beatles played, they didn't use a click track. The time is, Ringo had a great 
feel. But the time is not perfect. And perfect is pretty boring, or it can be boring, that element of it, when it comes to time and, and the beat and tempo. And to not use a click, that lets the human have our faults which mm-hmm. the best humans might be closer to perfect. It might be cool. Uh, but there's drama there for the listener. When the listener hears a perfect track, like a perfect Beyonce track, where it's the same groove all the way through or the tempo is the same or the chorus, they even copy and pasted her vocals. But, you know, it's just a legitimate way to record, you know, use the tool. Like, hey, let's make that chorus was perfect. Let's do that one again on the second chorus. Well, human things are that not everything's perfect. The second chorus of uh, the Beatles come together is a little different. And drama, that's drama. How good is it going to be? What's the faults? What's good about it? What's, you know, what's imperfect about it? What's so cool about it? How that changes. And that's what I think is missing and why album sales are down more than anything is people recording to the grid and there's no drama there and it's too perfect. It's like knowing the outcome of the baseball game before you watch it. You might go, "Eh, maybe I won't watch that again. I know what's going to happen. So like maybe I won't listen all the way through to that Beyonce tune. I'll hear a little bit. I don't need to hear the end. It's the same as the beginning. Let me get on with my life. So, (laughs) like with the BBB, again, we recorded live in front of an audience, just like Buddy did back in 1967 with Swing a New Big Band and Big Swing and Pace, et cetera. All his records, no click track. Yep. Brian Setzer, all the orchestra, all the records, no click track. And does the human listener in Oklahoma or wherever know that, that that's what's happening? No. But the, when but they feel it and they sense it and that's why people get drawn to music is that kind of imperfection in a good way and uh, that's what Buddy did that's what we did on the Frank Sinatra show and that's what how all the Frank recordings are recorded Fly Me to the Moon etc that he recorded uh, Brian Setzer Orchestra the BBB no click track and it's human I'm with you and that yeah. yeah. And uh, there's a record dumb drone so, too. Yep. Yeah. So, anyone listeners out there, put on uh, some different records, and you can even put a metronome to it, or you can just feel it. Oh, yeah, that there's something about that feel I like. And when it's going to be like, if you listen to the BBB or Frank Sinatra or or Brian Setzer Orchestra, you're going to hear that that's not a click track and not perfect, and you're going to you're going to like it. And that's one of the reasons you like it. So yep. that's when we, we recorded BBB live at Joe's in, in Burbank. Live audience, we recorded 18 tunes. We didn't fix any solos. We just picked the 12 best tunes that would fit, that we thought we played the best, and that were a good mix for an album, and then released it like the old days. And people love it. Yep. They love the feeling of real, what you call real music. And exactly. by real, meaning it there, it could be messed up. And right. it might be somewhere, but you, the listener doesn't hear it as bad. You just hear like, oh, cool. You hear something happening. Years ago, I was in a recording with Bob Mincer. We were listening to a playback of something that we all had just done. We're just standing there listening. And then I think the engineer said, oh, 
Bob, did you hear this? And he goes, yeah, you know what? Every good album has a little fuzz on it. Just leave it alone, man. <laughs> I was like, that was yeah, a great line. Exactly. It's uh-huh. so easy to fix everything. And, yep. you know, uh, just like uh, plastic surgery, let's fix that wrinkle or let's fix right. that tooth, you know, and you lose the character when you do that. Right. So, uh, Bernie, thanks again for taking time to be on the podcast. Uh, you gave us so much valuable information and insight into your career and into drumming. And I hope some of the uh, folks out there thinking about going into uh, music uh, take all your words to heart. And if you haven't gotten it yet, to all the listeners, I definitely recommend that you get uh, Bernie's album. Bernie, why don't you give us the title and where we can get it? Yes. Um, it's called The BBB featuring Bernie Dressel. And Dressel has one S in it. So spelling might be important. Uh, that's the name of the band. The name of the album is Live and Burnin'. So N apostrophe and Burnin' is a play on my name. I'm making it really hard for people to find it. Burnin', B-E-R-N, <laughs> like Bernie, I-N apostrophe. And you can get it. It's interesting. People don't know where to buy records anymore. And right. they sometimes use an excuse. They go, well, where can I get it? And it's generally where you can get everything. Amazon. You can buy right. shoes at Amazon. You can buy a record there. Um, Amazon, CD Baby. These are all online stores. Uh, uh, iTunes. Um, you can get it at uh, the tape I mentioned about Real Real Tape is at tapeproject.com. Um, you can uh, do a digital download. You can buy CD. You can buy the Blu-ray, which the Blu-ray is not a video. It's audio. And it's uh, uh, higher quality and surround sound. And what else? Vinyl. And uh, the real-to-real tape and the digital downloads. Yeah. Vinyl, yeah, definitely at Amazon you can get that. There's also a place called uh, Elusive Disc. That's sometimes a place you can find some stuff that you couldn't find somewhere else. They they also have the vinyl and the Blu-ray there at elusivedisc.com. But yes, everywhere online. That's those are the places Great. to get it. You will not find it on Spotify. Oh, perfect. We're that's not good. we're not like giving Spotify it away either. for free. Yeah, we're not giving nope. it away for free. Or we couldn't make the record. That's I, right. I'm not quite sure why people put the record on Spotify at all. Right. But um Yeah. A thousand of a pen doesn't really yeah. cut it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll um, put the links, all the links that you uh, just stated, uh, I'll try to put most of those under this podcast so that folks can just click it, check out the album, and then get it right there online. Okay. All right, man. So thank you for your uh, inspirational drumming and for taking the time to be on the podcast. All right. Great to talk with you. I ended up talking more than 30 seconds. <laughs> it was all worth it. So thanks, Bernie. <laughs> all righty. Thank you. See you later. To find out more about Bernie Dressel, his great new recording, and all of his upcoming projects, please visit the links at the bottom of this podcast. And thanks for listening.